Hi and welcome to the Girl Next Door podcast. I'm your host Renee Bennett and this is a leadership podcast for ordinary girls compelled to lead an extraordinary life. Make sure you come and find me on social media, girlnextdoor.podcast. Welcome everyone to another episode of Girl Next Door podcast. Guess what? We have reached a milestone. Guys, we have done 50 episodes in a row. I think that's something worth celebrating. So thank you to all of you that have stuck with me for 50 episodes, those of you that have shared it and brought your friends along the journey. Um, But I just thought that was something worth celebrating today. And we didn't miss a beat, not one week, which is incredible. And on top of all that, I did my Christmas shopping. Well, half of it, half of it anyway. Hey, um, today is part two of our transgender collection. For those of you perhaps that have jumped on today, it would be really great for you to go back to part one from last week. And just so you know, we've been making our way through a book called Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. It's not too late to come and join our extended conversation that we're having on Facebook. Have a look for Girl Next Door Book Club. Um, Request to join and we're having great chats on there with um, just a small community that want to chat more about this whole transgender topic. And I'm posting some extra material and videos and um, yeah, all sorts of stuff. So come along if you want to have an extended conversation. Um, If you're not reading the book with us, then these episodes will still completely make sense to you. Um, My probably one of my greatest concerns about you know, this topic, but not just transgender, but other topics that are hitting our culture hard at the moment is that we've been made to feel that we can't debate, let alone disagree with a lot of the new ideologies that are being pushed in our current culture. But everything just seems to be happening so quickly and escalating so quickly. And I just want to encourage you guys not to feel bad to be asking questions and having the debate. We shouldn't be made to feel that we can't even have the debate. Or that we can't have our own point of view um, without being made to feel bad. You know, just this week, I was watching a video which is about um, a new documentary coming out called Transhood, and it features a mother at a Unitarian church service proclaiming that her four year old son now identifies as a girl. If you want to see this video, jump on my Facebook Girl Next Door book club because you'll be able to see it there. And the mother brings the son to the altar to make the confession publicly, of which the child kind of backs out at the last minute, probably shy to be talking in front of everyone. So the mother does it for for him and says to everyone that this child would like everyone to know that he is a girl and goes by the pronouns she or her. Now, when I look at something like that, I I go, a four-year-old cannot make that decision. They can't. It is wrong. But if we say that, you know, we're punished. So Shreya, the author of this book we're looking at, you know, she gets banned by Target or I get messages in my inbox to be made to feel bad by saying, guys, we, th- these are major life decisions and we're allowing a child to make these decisions. Uh, all these ideologies um, are becoming more and more widespread, but everyone seems too nervous or too scared to actually mention it. You know, the other day I also heard that if Joe Biden... Uh, when he enters his first day of office in the US, he apparently is going to give transgender students access to locker rooms and bathrooms according to the, their identity in all public funded schools. Like, what? 
So a biological male will be allowed in a girl's bathroom. But if we have questions about this, we get shouted down and we're made, we're being made to think that what used to be normal is abnormal and what is abnormal is now becoming normal. And we're made to feel crazy or intolerant or bigoted or transphobic for having questions or for considering, you know, for for being normal. Bringing drag queens to a library to read to children is not normal. It's not. But if we scream, shout and object, they look at us like we're the crazy ones. Teaching children in our primary and high schools that their gender is fluid. That's not right. But we back off and apologize and say sorry. But my concern is there is an intellectual, a moral and a scientific debate to be had here. But apparently we're not allowed to debate or even ask questions. That in itself is wrong. Why not? Why can't we ask questions? I shouldn't have to put up with messages saying that I'm transphobic just because I raised some questions, which by the way, they're sensible questions. They're intellectual questions. They're moral questions. It's a scientific debate we do need to have. You know, just this week, things already have started turning in the UK. There was a landmark ruling by the British High Court in the UK that have now ruled that children under the age of 16 are unlikely to be able to give informed consent to take puberty blockers to begin the transgender process. Now, previous to this, according to the research that I've seen, um, the the transgender or the gender identity issues have risen by 4,000% in the UK previously. But all of a sudden, they've decided to completely change it and say, if you are under the age of 16, you're unlikely to be able to give informed consent. And do you know why? Because somebody who was given puberty blockers under the age of 16 has now sued the British government. So her name is Kira Bell. You can look it up. And she's the claimant in this case. And she was referred to a youth gender identity clinic and was put on puberty blockers at the age of 16 after only three sessions with a psychologist. At 17, she was put on testosterone. And at 20, she had a double mastectomy. She now regrets it. I think she's about 23 now from memory. She now regrets it and has detransitioned after realizing, and I quote, the vision I had as a teenager of becoming male was strictly fantasy and that it was not possible. I was being perceived as a man by society, but it was not enough, unquote. She goes on to say, and I quote again, I began to feel more lost isolated and confused than I did when I was pre-transition. So she's now suing the government for allowing her to undergo the radical therapy. And she argues that underage children cannot possibly know what they are signing up for. And she even did, by the way, present as gender dysphoric from the age of four. And the three judges that ruled in her case ruled that children under the age of 16 wouldn't be able to properly grasp the consequences of consenting to using puberty blockers. Guys, the jury is still out. The UK were all for this previously, 
And all it took was one young girl to sue them, to show them, hey guys, what the heck were you thinking letting me decide to take puberty blockers at the age of 15? Well, now they've changed their minds. It's a bit like the divorce experiment. When the no-fault divorce laws came in, which in Australia was in 1976, just after it was signed in California um, a few years previously, then it came into Australia, nobody thought about the mass, the effect of mass divorce on all the children or on society as a whole. And if you've listened to past podcasts, you know that I am one of the children in that divorce, no-fault divorce law experiment. My parents got divorced that year because it was easy, because they didn't have to prove fault. And they were the very first lot of people here in Australia under that law, along with thousands of others. Well, guess what? A generation later, people like me have a story to tell. We are the research. Hey guys, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. One of the longest studies ever done has been by a psychologist. Her name is Judith Wallerstein on children from divorced homes. The study has gone from f- for 40 years. She jumped into the study to prove that divorce was a good thing and that kids were, were resilient, but she came out the biggest advocate against divorce and for the family because she saw the lifelong inescapable damage um, that happened to children who are now adults like me. I think it's only a matter of time before this transgender experiment is the same. So let's have a bit of a quick recap on the first couple of chapters of Schreier's book. Remember the name of it, Irreversible Damage. Um, I thought she made some really valid points about why perhaps the transgender movement might be attractive, particularly to teenage girls. And just to reiterate again, she's not talking in her book about transgender adults. She's specifically talking about teenagers, about adolescents, and specifically females. So I'll just run through some of the things that she talked about in her first few chapters. So she said things like, okay, let's look at what these girls are doing with their time. They're spending nine plus hours on their phones. They're social media saturated. Their advice is coming from people and influencers way beyond their immediate safety net of good adults around them. So where once upon a time, it was parents, teachers, pastors, community people. Now it's people they have never met from the internet. They're in less contact with their friends. So they're lonelier than ever. And I've read a couple of books on that. And I talked about that last week. They're also being raised to be safe physically and they don't like discomfort. You know, so we've, even if you look at the school system, we've taken away monkey bars and um, young people are driving, getting their licenses later than ever. Um, You know, if someone doesn't agree with with an opinion at university, they can go into a safe zone. Yet now they've never felt more unsafe mentally. And there's a rising crisis rate of anxiety and depression and other mental health issues. Now, you add into this the fact that puberty is uncomfortable, but of course, they don't want to feel discomfort. Throw in the fact that they want a quick fix. Plus, beauty standards have risen with our benchmark no longer being real people where we could see their humanity, even if they were beautiful. Uh, We could still see their humanity and their, their flaws, but now everything is photoshopped in this world of social media. Then we have educators, and we'll talk more about this today, but educators pushing this new ideology of gender theories in schools. We have a young generation being taught to question everything that previously we didn't question. 
Previously, there were things that we took as absolute truth, which we're told is not truth anymore, like there are only two genders. So now they're given the option to transition. It just ticks so many boxes, not to mention their desire to be popular, accepted, validated, which they get oodles of when they transition in front of the world on social media. Now, again, clearly, I did say last week that actual transgender adults um, never transition for those reasons. In fact, none of them ever had other people that they knew that transitioned. They certainly didn't put it out there on social media. It was very much a private and a difficult affair, but we're living in different times. So they're copying their celebrity role models they're being, who are being applauded by likes and follows and comments and articles being written about them. Educators are encouraging it. Parents' rights are being taken away. And that happened just in Australia in the last couple of weeks, which I'll talk about next week. Doctors are being encouraged to prescribe blockers. Plus, for the first time ever, this is happening in clusters, in friendship clusters, leading us to think that there is some what we call groupthink happening here. So we have a perfect storm. And based on all of the above, my question is, is encouraging gender gender transition in teenage girls and boys who have never displayed symptoms of gender dysphoria in childhood, is that the right thing to do? Is it, or is it irresponsible? Is it doing harm or good? So um, we're going to whiz through the next three chapters of the book. Um, first, first part we're going to look at is the puzzle behind the fact that transgenderism is for the first time in history happening in friendship clusters. Then we'll just have a quick move on to the influences encouraging our young people all over social media platforms. And then finally, we'll take a look at what's happening in our school. So they're the three spaces I want to take us to today. So let's look at what Shreya describes in her book as the puzzle. So Lisa Littman, who's an obstetric gynecologist turned public health researcher, was one of the first people, and she is in America, by the way, to see and report on her observations that girls were coming out as transgender in friendship clusters. Now, she studied epidemiology and her research concluded that in America and across the Western world, that adolescents were reporting a sudden spike in gender dysphoria. So in the US, between 2016 and 2017, gender surgeries for natal females quadrupled, with biological women suddenly accounting for 70% of these surgeries. Now, the craze hasn't quite hit Australia in the same way, but it's definitely on the incline here also. In 2018, and I mentioned this before, the UK reported a 4,400% rise over the previous decade in teenage girls seeking gender treatments. But remember, I said they've just changed one of their laws in the UK because for the first time they've been sued. So Lisa Littman's question was, why would the incidence of gender dysphoria be so much higher in friend clusters? She found the prevalence of trans identification with some of the within some of the girls' friendship groups was more than 70 times the expected rate of what it had been previously. Now you could argue that it gave the others more courage to come out, but this still doesn't explain why trans identification was sharply clustered in specific friendship groups. 
you know, young people should be coming out then all over the place, not just in friendship clusters. So she calls this rapid onset gender dysphoria, R-O-G-D. So it's the gender dysphoria that has never existed like it has historically medically uh, in children, usually presenting between the ages of two to four. This is all of a sudden teenagers that have that are becoming um, gender dysphoric. Now, she concluded that these girls seem to be caught in a craze. And the word craze, by the way, is actually a technical term in sociology when an idea spreads quickly through a community. And it's not always a harmful idea. It's just any kind of idea that kind of becomes infectious. So her analysis drew praise from some of the most distinguished world experts on gender dysphoria, but of course, she was also widely tarred as a bigot and a bully. Uh, she actually lost her job. So teenagers, according to Dr. Lippman, they're social creatures. And I know that. I've been working with them for 25 years. Anyone that works with teenagers knows this. They're very influenced by their peers. It's how they develop, but it's also how they lead each other to harm. In the last decade, adolescent gender dysphoria has increased by over a thousand percent in the U.S., but yet no research has been done as to why. Psychologists who study peer influence believe teenage girls are so susceptible to peer contagion because of the way that they tend to socialize. You know what girls are like in groups. They're so supportive of one another. They're validating. They're willing to get right into their friends' worlds and share in their pain, which is a really great social skill, but it also leads them to take on one another's, one another's ailments. So Lippmann concluded that unlike trans, uh, traditional gender dysphoria, this sudden onset of adolescent gender dysphoria has been encouraged and intensified by their friends and by social media. And, I, and, you know, I find it interesting that when people, you know, might inbox me about, you know, leave it to the experts and you don't know or whatever else they might say, I'm like, well, people like Lisa Lippmann had experts from around the world praising her research and she is an expert herself um, on this. On um, She was a, an obstetric gynecologist, so she had a lot of experience in this field. And so we, I'm not, I'm not, you know, saying something of my own opinion here. This is something that is um, equally backed by other people who do know what they're talking about. All right. So that's the first part. The second part that I want us to look at is the influences, how the social media influences might be having a hand in this. So I spoke last week of Ellen Page, who is an actor who has now came out, come out as Elliot Page. Uh, you can do a quick Google of this and heaps of articles come up. Now, there's a vast array of social media influences from YouTubers, you know, uh, Instagrammers, on Facebook, all creating communities online, offering advice, humor, encouragement, deeply personal confessions, physical transformations are documented. Now, some of the advice includes things like this. If you think you might be trans, you are. Or trying out trans, binders are a great way to start. Or advice like testosterone is amazing, it might just solve all your problems. Or if your parents loved you, they would support you. Or deceiving your parents and doctors is justified if it helps. 
there does seem to be genuine companionship between people of the trans community and it is offering the very thing that young people crave and look for, safety, community, belonging, a sense of family. And for those that are feeling unsafe and on the outer and lonely, this is really, really attractive to them. Someone sent me an article this week from the Gospel Coalition, which I will post on the Facebook page, that uh, this um, person made a really, the author of this article made an excellent observation that while the world applauds people like Ellen Page or Elliot Page for announcing her decision to become a man, yet when the author of the article made a decision to no longer identify as a gay man because he followed Christ, he is ignored and even shunned and certainly not applauded or written about. That's a double standard. Why the double standard? Elliot is celebrated for becoming his authentic self, Yet why doesn't culture celebrate the author's decision to become his authentic self? The author points out in the article that even Hillary Clinton tweeted, it's wonderful to witness people becoming who they are. Congratulations, Elliot. But in 2008, Hillary opposed same-sex marriage and by 2013, she reversed her support because the political risk had disappeared. So trans had become fashionable. So Hillary and many other leaders in culture are all publicly supporting it. So Hillary, is it really wonderful to witness people becoming who they are? Or is it only wonderful when the true self that they've discovered fits popular cultural narrative? So just this week, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasters who made a brilliant statement that we cannot be culturally compromising without becoming theologically compromising. And I'll talk more about that in, um, in another podcast. But you can see how young people are already so impressionable and they look up to the people who influence them on social media. And when they've got so many of them giving so much advice and they're being applauded, you can see how that's really attractive to a young person and how influenced they can be. All right, so we've looked at the puzzle of how this is happening in friendship clusters. Uh, We've covered just very quickly there on the influencers who are having, you know, obviously a big influence on young people over social media. But I just wanted to land this by uh, looking at what is happening in our schools. Now, the book actually obviously is exploring more of what's happening in American schools, but she does make some excellent points that are still really relevant to us. But believe me, this is creeping in more and more to Australian education. So I think I spoke about this last week, but a few years ago, there was a push here in Australia for the Safer Schools program. And it was masked as an anti-bullying program, but completely had the agenda to push a new gender ideology. Now, one of the founders, by the way, of the Safer Schools program is now in politics in Victoria. Interesting. Um, Now, as parents got wind of the program, there was a lot of opposition. So eventually most states let the funding take its course and then didn't renew it for the program. But don't be fooled. I spoke last week about the Respectful Relationships Program just here in Queensland. Um, And there's an article that Lyle Shelton um, has written, which you can look up as well, 
I think it's called, um, it is called Gender Fluid Indoctrination to be Compulsory in All Queensland State Schools. So in that article, he talks about uh, that in a ministerial statement delivered to Parliament at the end of last year, Labor's Child Safety Minister, Di Farmer, said that this program would be rolled out in all state schools. I think state Queensland schools, sorry. Now, it's been billed as an anti-domestic and sexual violence measure, and it really has some great material, but it also contains rainbow ideology. So basically, children in Queensland state schools will be taught that it is a myth to think that people are either born male or female. Why on earth is gender fluid indoctrination a part of the national curriculum at all? Our former Prime Minister, John Howard, when he was asked about the Safe Schools program, this is what he said, and I quote, What's disappointed me is an issue like Safe Schools. When that emerged, it should have been hit on the head by centre-right governments at federal and state level. It should have been a simple and vigorous response. End of quote. Well said, John Howard, but nope. Now it's uh, creeping its way from not only our schools, but into our sports with our federal sports department announcing a new transgender guidelines for junior sports. So this radical view of gender has become mainstream because it was packaged up as anti-bullying. Really, it was about laying the groundwork for acceptance, inclusiveness, and an anti-bullying environment. And who wouldn't want that? What person working with young people wouldn't want that? We all want acceptance and love and inclusiveness and no bullying for our young people. Now, as a group, we are aware that transgender identified students are more vulnerable and all decent human beings are concerned for the welfare of these students. So, of course, people wanted to fix this problem. But it's now become clear that a simple remedy is really not what the fixers had in mind. If it was really about acceptance, tolerance and anti-bullying, we should have done for these students what we would do for any other student and handled bullying the way it would be handled in any other context. And what would that be? Well, insisting that students are displaying decency and kindness and tolerance, we would be teaching them to follow the golden rules and they would be punished if they didn't. But no, instead, students are made to imagine themselves as gay or transgender, imagine that they're a girl in a boy's body or a boy in a girl's body, and then ask what percent of male or female do they feel, and it's a myth to be born either male or female. But let's let's put this in any other context. Like what if an Asian child were being picked on for what they had in their lunchbox. And believe me, I I have experienced this where kids get teased because they're from another culture. And so what's in their lunchbox is different to what other kids might have. What if they had pork steam buns or last night's leftover dinner in their lunchbox? It would be ridiculous that the school board would mandate that every student now has to have Asian cooking lessons on a regular basis and everyone has to have, um, you know, Asian lunch day and bring, bring their lunch to school. If we mandated that students learn about every single issue that kids are bullied about, there wouldn't be enough years in their education to do so. So, of course, every teacher, every school, every person working with young people are against bullying. But bullying is being used 
as an excuse for gender ideology indoctrination and the insistence that transgender students must be affirmed or suffer a physical, a psychological toll. Every student needs to be affirmed. The students who have just lost a parent need to be affirmed. The student whose parents have just divorced need to be affirmed. The students who have just come from another country need to be affirmed. The student with autism needs to be affirmed. The students whose ESL, and I could go on and on. And yes, the student who identifies as LGBTQ or has gender dysphoria, yes, they also need to be affirmed. So Shreya makes the excellent point also that it's really interesting that the material, the curriculum, and the teacher training for gender ideology is mostly supplied by gender activists. And that was the case here with the Safer Schools. That was written by gender activists and then handed to uh, the teachers. Now, at the same time that our schools teach science, and so Schreier makes this comment here that it's interesting that we're, we're teaching one thing that's really against science at the same time that we're teaching science as a subject in schools. And she actually comments that it's biological nonsense to suggest that a girl's brain stamped with XX chromosomes might inhabit a boy's body. But yet who dares to mention this? It's taught like as fact, like any other scientific fact. So one of the analogies that she used was that of the anti-vaxxer. So anti-vaxxers also represent a group that are outside of your normal mainstream scientific, um, you know, measures. Imagine if they were brought in to speak to students and asked to provide material for health classes in high schools and allowed to present their version of science. This would never happen. One of the aims, though, of gender ideology that's being taught is um, to, to normalize it. And that brings us right back to where I began today, that what is normal is now considered abnormal. And what perhaps once we considered abnormal is now considered normal. But it does more than that. According to Schreier, all this intentional education encourages adolescents to focus relentlessly on their own gender identities and sexual orientations. So it encourages them to constantly uh, look for landmark feelings or impulses or anything that might point towards gender fluid or gender queer or asexual or non-binary. It also encourages the two camps of us and them. So the dauntless, fearless, young who welcome different gender identities and then those who don't. And if we don't agree with them, then we're touted as bigots, transphobic, living in the past, out of touch, even reckless and careless. So what they've done is they've created these two camps where one has become a tribe and the other have become the enemy. And Schreier wanted to be really clear that those who teach gender ideology, they're not making the adolescents transgender, but what they're doing is filling their heads with gender options and ideology so that when they experience a crisis, the heroic solution readily bobs to their mind. So that's where I wanted to finish it today. So just to kind of wrap up, there was three thoughts that we looked at from the book, which was, um, you know, the puzzle of why all of a sudden is the trans is transgenderism happening in friendship clusters? 
um, you know, are secondly our social media influencers having any kind of part in this? And then thirdly, what's happening in our education system? Um, And by the way, not just in high schools, but right down into our kindergarten and in our um, junior primary and our, uh, yeah, our younger children as well. There are books being written like, um, I think the one here in Australia was called The Gender Fairy. And then there's another one. I'm not sure if this one's hit Australia, but I know this was big in the UK and potentially the US, um, The Gingerbread Person, where it was a picture of the gingerbread man, I call it, but now the gingerbread person, teaching children about um, where their gender really comes from and how it's decided in their brain and not a part of their biology. So yeah, you've got all sorts of stuff, but if you guys want to continue the conversation, like I said, please, the place to do it is, um, to come along and have a chat on our Facebook page. And, um, if you've made it this far to the end, um, well done, but you know that my heart is because I love young people and I, Um, I love God and I want to ask these questions because I want to know if this is the best thing for our young people. So anyway, come along and find me on Facebook and next week we will continue. I might finish it up next week. We'll see how we go. Um, But I look forward to being with you until then. Happy Christmas shopping and I will see you soon. Bye. Make sure you come and find me on social media, girlnextdoor.podcast.